writes. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to find Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. As I say that, I'm like second guessing that that's actually the chapter. I feel like it's actually 21. (laughs) You ever done that before? You write something down and then you just immediately second guess. I do that pretty much every time I put something in my calendar. All right, so start going to Matthew 19 because it's real close. We're going to 21. Go to 21 then. So go to 19. This is what I meant. Go to 19, but then keep going. Another chapter to 20, and then keep going one more chapter to 21. All right. Matthew 21 is where we're going to be. We have been looking at the final weeks of Jesus' ministry uh, and his life prior to the crucifixion. All right, it started with him uh, raising Lazarus from the grave. All right, like that miracle was so public and so big and such a drastic move that the religious leaders at that moment decided we need to kill Jesus. Like it's no longer that he's just a nuisance Um, or difficulty for us, or that he's drawing people away. At this point, he's doing such crazy things that that the Romans could come in, they they could get rid of all the Jewish people, like, we need to kill Jesus. And one of the high priests says, it's better for one person to die than the entire nation. Like, you can feel what they're trying to see. And so from that point on, we started with Lazarus, and we're moving up as we go towards Easter, towards the crucifixion. All right, um... And after Lazarus, Jesus started this road trip where he's like, I am going to move towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where he knows he is ultimately going to die. And so he's basically kind of making this final march right towards the capital. All right. And last week, we see he went through a city called Jericho. And we have this great story of a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus who for all the amazing things he did in that story, we remember him because he is short. All right, that poor guy. Like he gave away half his stuff and then paid back everyone he had cheated four times what he had done and we remember him because he's short. But it is an amazing story of life change that we saw last week. Now this week he is going to enter Jerusalem. This is the start of what the Christian calendar would call uh, Holy Week. All right, now there are quite a few things that happen in this week. There's different interactions, teachings, stories and we are going to look at all this leading up to Easter. We are going to skip some of the more well-known ones like the Last Supper. And today, uh, we are going to look at three different stories that actually need to kind of be pulled together because often we've broken them apart. uh, and, And what happens when we break these three apart is it's really hard to understand them. And we start to maybe think the wrong thing about some of these stories. We're going to look at three of them, uh, kind of from a bird's eye view. Then we're going to dive into the middle one specifically, all right? So I'm excited for this. Uh, Let's just kind of be ready. Let's sit on the edge of our seat saying, God, I know you have something for me today. Uh, I have gotten up. I've gone to church. Let's let's have something that is going to change our lives, that's going to make an impact. Uh, So let's just kind of be ready for that. If you would, would you stand with me if you're willing, if you're able? Would you stand? Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to kind of go through the stories as we, as we go through this. So I'm not going to read them yet, but let's pray together as we start this. So uh, God, we just pray that as we dive into your word today, Lord, maybe we've read these stories before. Maybe this is the first time we've heard them. Whatever that would look like, God, we just ask that, um, that you would just illuminate new things to us. God, things that would challenge us, things that would change us. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, why don't you guys have a seat? So one of the things we have to understand as we look at these three stories 
is that um, there's this idea, almost kind of like political cartoons or certain images that like, you know, when you look at them, they, they have like a deeper meaning to them. Maybe you see them initially and it kind of looks like this little drawing or something. Uh, but then as you kind of peel back the layers, there's more and more of what's happening. Okay, uh, an example of this, there's a modern artist uh, called Banksy. Anybody heard of Banksy before? There's going to be some images that he's done. He does like graffiti, street art type of thing. Uh, no one actually knows really who he is, or at least I know for a long time they didn't. And all of his images, you're going to see, they have like this deeper meaning behind them. You know, so you have like a parking ramp where it's like, that's just kind of a, a, a junky place. But he's like covered over the parking and said park and drawn a picture of a kid. And, you know, someone pulling out, like they're looking at a flower. But like how often do we actually destroy things as we try and like go in closer? And, and so all these different things. Banksy is a very uh, kind of charged uh, politically in, in what he does, where he does it. And this is not trying to like endorse or come against anything. It's just... This is the type of idea that we have to understand, that sometimes there are greater meanings behind an image or behind something happening, okay? And like these symbolic images. Now, that idea, that idea of what he's doing is actually how the Old Testament prophets often operated. When they would go to talk to God's people, they would do borderline like street theater trying to get people's attention and do these crazy things that had these deeper meanings behind them. Okay, and some of them are crazy. Like we had, um, so the prophet Isaiah, like at one point he had to just walk around like naked for like a year. Could you imagine being like, okay, God, I, I just, I don't really want to be called to do that. If you could ask me to do something else, you know, I know I complained about serving in the nursery, but I'll go back to the nursery Instead of walking around Long Prairie naked for a year. You know, and like these things that, it's crazy how God used them and spoke to them. Ezekiel had to give himself a haircut and shave like with a sword. You can imagine how good that looked. And then he was doing these things with the hair and like acting like, okay, this is what's going to happen to to the Israelites. Like their enemies are going to come in and chop them up and... Um, and you had, um, he also had other times really wild things. He had to lay on the side for like a certain amount of time and then roll over and lay on his other side. And we're talking like a long time, like weeks, months. Um, at one point, he had to then sit out in the street while he was doing this. He had to cook his food. And originally, it was supposed to be over his own feces. And then he kind of bartered with God and was like, um, can, we, can we do something else? And God's like, fine, you can use cow manure. And you're like... I guess that's better. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and like, so these moments, but it wasn't just a crazy person doing crazy things. There was a deeper symbolic meaning to what was happening. Okay, and this is how the prophets worked. This is how God spoke through them. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus is kind of stepping into that role of what the prophets did. And what he does in these stories is going to be deeply symbolic. There are so many layers of what's happening. We aren't even going to be able to get into all of it. I'm going to try and just kind of highlight some of them. Okay? And, and so, like, the main, the middle one that we're going to look at is Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. And this passage, I think, has been so misunderstood at different times. Um, all sorts of different things that people want to kind of say with this. Uh, so we're going to look at all three of these quickly. All right, now under, remember, Jesus' MO up to this point 
has been that he like kind of flies below the radar. When someone gets healed, when something big happens, Jesus is like, hey, don't tell anybody. All right, just keep it to yourself. I'm kind of trying to stay, you know, a little bit uh, anonymous right now. Please, please don't run around saying this. People never did that. They still ran around and talked about it. But then with Lazarus, it becomes very public. Goes to Jericho and meets with the worst of the worst. Everybody sees this happen. Everybody's talking about it. Everything he's doing is becoming much more public in this moment. He seems to be ramping things up here in a way uh, that he wouldn't previously have done, and people are getting much more upset. All right, so Matthew 21. Uh, I want you to kind of follow along. The verses will be on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read them, uh, but instead I'm going to talk through them. So Jesus has a group of his followers. They are gathered on the Mount of Olives, which is a little hill outside of Jerusalem that overlooks a valley that goes down and comes back up into Jerusalem. All right, so he is at the village of Bethpage here. He sent some disciples ahead to get a donkey for him. Maybe you remember this story. Now, we see in the text, after Jesus gets on the donkey and is riding, that there was a prophecy about Jesus riding in on a donkey. And oftentimes, that's kind of where we stop with the idea of a donkey. We're like, okay, yep, makes sense. There was that prophecy there. But there are more layers to what's happening, and people who would have understood um, the Jewish scripture, which would have been every single Jewish person, they learn this in a way that we do not learn our Bible today, like if I'm being honest. They were memorizing massive portions. They would begin to understand some of these things. All right? Uh, in 2 Samuel 16, King David has just been overthrown by his son Absalom. Maybe you're familiar with this story. David is leaving because he doesn't want his son to come in and try and kill him or hurt anybody else. He's like, it's better for me to just leave. And he walks from Jerusalem out to the Mount of Olives, gets up there, and there's actually um, someone waiting. Ziba's waiting with these donkeys for him. And King David rides off of the Mount of Olives, but the other direction, on a donkey. And then as he does this, there's someone on a hill kind of next to him who's just screaming profanities at him. All right, like it's this really kind of wild story that's going on. So people would be thinking about this idea of a donkey off the Mount of Olives. And instead of, of David riding away, almost kind of in shame and someone screaming at him, Jesus is riding into the city as people praise him. All right, and, and this whole thing is kind of just happening publicly in front of them. Now, we have Jesus, son of David, which is what people are shouting, riding back in on the donkey while they praise him. And when David is passing his kingdom to his son Solomon, um, he actually has Solomon specifically ride his donkey to his coronation to become king. And donkeys were not necessarily something that a king would always ride. So you might be like, well, okay, why are people supposed to just know that? Because these are, these are specific images that they would have understood. Okay, so when Jesus gets on a donkey, you have him fulfilling the prophecy that's written there in Matthew from Zechariah. You have him fulfilling the inverse of David leaving on a donkey. And you have him embodying Solomon, who is going to his coronation to be king on a donkey. All of this is happening because of this one animal. Now you have crowds that are shouting, Hosanna. And Hosanna, you know, it's translated in, in this one as like praise. But it really, it literally just means save. Save us. Save now. So Jesus is riding in. 
He looks like he's being a king. He's got all these followers who are shouting, save us, son of David, which is this Messiah kind of motif in scripture. And then what do you have them doing? You have them laying down jackets and palm branches in front of him, which we don't see this in our Bible, but actually if you had a Catholic Bible, they have the book of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees. Talks about this big Jewish revolution that had happened, overthrowing people who were, who were um, oppressing them. And when the leaders of that one came back in, the Maccabean revolt, when they rode back into the capital city, people laid down palm branches in front of them as they rode in. So can you feel like all of the symbolism, all of the weight, all of the meaning behind this like short little story of Jesus just coming into the city? All the expectations of the people that are cheering for him as he's doing this. But what do they, they have specific thoughts and expectations and ideas of what this would mean. Now the problem is, is actually what they wanted was to Jesus to come in and to wage war on the Romans and to deliver them from the Romans, to overthrow their oppressors. But something that a king would do, if a king was riding in on a horse, it meant that they were basically going into war. That was like the mindset, that war was on their mind if they're riding a horse. If they were riding a donkey, it was peace. And so you have all of these crazy layers to this story of what's happening. And I think a lot of it is lost, even on the people that are there that day cheering for Jesus. Because they want him to come and do what they want him to do. And as he's doing this in Luke, it actually says this. Jesus, um, Luke 41 uh, verse 41 here says, But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. This is as he's riding in on the donkey. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. So Jesus has been below the radar. Let's not stir things up. And all of this changes right here in these final days. He has done this intentionally. Can we feel the, the heaviness, the symbolism behind all of these things as he rides into the city? And this is, this is scene one. We have three scenes we're going to look at. This is the end of scene one. Jesus comes in. This big attention-getting visual. Now imagine if, if the Romans caught wind of Jesus riding in like this. If they even understood half of the imagery of him coming in as a king, as a leader, they would come in and completely squash just the Jewish people. That's what they had done. It was actually the Seleucid Empire was in charge of, of the Jewish people and they, they outlawed all Jewish practices. They weren't allowed to sacrifice anything. They weren't allowed to practice their religion. That's what led to that Maccabean revolt. The Romans would have came in and done the exact same thing to the Jewish people if they knew what was happening. And it says that as Jesus came in, the city, depending on your translation, it might say that the city was stirred, the city was in an uproar, the city was in turmoil. It's meant to be a, a negative statement. The city's like, what is going on here? Everybody's on edge as Jesus comes riding in. Because what's happening here is he's, he's timed this perfectly. This is at Passover. 
Jerusalem was thought to probably be around 50,000 people. Actually, not that big. But over Passover, it would swell to about 200,000 people. Can you imagine that? Like, think about your full capacity of something. You know, this room is, is seated for probably about 200 people. Think if we were like, okay, we're going to cram 800 people in here now. <laughs> like, you can just imagine, like, oh, that's too many. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem. And so there is so much going on as Jesus comes in, and this is the end of scene one. Then Jesus goes into the temple. Now in Matthew and Luke, the story's told in a way where it almost seems like Jesus rides in on the donkey, gets off the donkey, and goes right into the temple. But in reality, they kind of just say like, hey, here's the next thing that happens that we're going to tell you about. Mark actually tells us that Jesus went to the temple, looked around, and it was too late in the afternoon, so he left and comes back the next day. All right? And that's, that's kind of an important thing for us. But this next scene, Jesus enters the temple and he begins to drive people out. Now traditionally, I've heard this just boiled down to Jesus is mad at what's happening, so he flips the tables, indiscriminately just tossing tables left and right, chases people out. He's opposed to people selling things instead of praying. All right? And I've heard all sorts of Christians justify angry outbursts or big passionate displays where they lose their cool and they're like, well, listen, Jesus flipped tables so I can yell a little bit. You know, they like almost use it as an excuse. Anyone ever heard that before? Maybe it's just me, okay? All right, like I've heard people like, all right, well, you know what? Jesus got mad and he, he flipped tables and things like that. Um, the, the phrasing that I'll hear people say often with this is like righteous anger, all right? Um, and and it's, it's okay for me to be harsh because it's this righteous anger that I have. But what actually is making Jesus angry? Or, or what is he truly passionate about in this moment? And we get a hint when we actually look at this closely. What are the, the specific things he does or, or where he goes? And, and these are actually highlighted in three out of all four of the, uh, the stories of this throughout the Gospels. He goes after the money changers and he goes after people selling doves. Those are specifically cited in three of the four Gospels. Money changers and the doves. Alright, now I know you all just got done reading through the book of Leviticus this morning for your devotions, right? Because that is just the most exciting book to read through. There's actually a little bit of what's going on here that we need to understand. Usually, the markets were actually outside the temple. Back in the day, there was a spot where they had markets. You could buy animals. You could exchange money. They were outside the temple. It's thought that Caiaphas, the high priest, he's actually the one that decided to open up a competing market or to move the market in the temple. Because if it's in the temple... They have control over it. They are controlling the money exchanging. And what do we say last week when we were talking about taxes with Zacchaeus? Every time money changes hands, somebody's making money. It's just how it works. And so when he brings the market inside the temple, now Caiaphas, now the leaders of the temple, they are able to have a cut in this. And what better time to do that than when you have an extra 150,000 people who you can almost guarantee 
all of those 150,000 are going to be Jewish people because they're there for Passover. It wasn't like anyone else would come to celebrate Passover. All right? And so normally you would go to the temple, you would buy an animal maybe. Um, oftentimes you had to exchange your coins because the, the uh, taxes, the offerings that they had to give had to be a certain coin. And when you're occupied by Rome or another country, your currency has probably changed. Now you're using the Roman uh, denarii and anything like that. And so they have to go in, they have to exchange their money, and they probably lose a little bit of money there. And they have to go buy an animal, they lose a little bit of money there. All right? Now, this is, this is important. The money exchangers and the doves. Now, why, why the doves? Well, if you're traveling and you're bringing an animal for sacrifice you're not going to bring that animal with you hundreds of miles. Because when you read the laws, the animal had to be perfect, without blemish. Without you. It couldn't be like, okay, we got to go sacrifice a lamb, grab the three-legged one, because we don't want that one anyways. Go sacrifice that one. No, it had to be the best of the best. But if you're traveling with a large group of people hundreds of miles, what's the chance that whatever animal you have with might get injured? Pretty good. So you're not going to bring one with you. You're going to buy one there. Now, in Leviticus, the sin offering, arguably one of the more important ones, like if you've sinned and you want to be in right standing with God, the sin offering had to be a lamb. But a lamb was expensive. And so they made a caveat that if you can't afford a lamb, if you're too poor to buy a lamb, you can sacrifice doves instead. So in this moment, Jesus is going after the money changers and he's going after where the doves are. Basically, the place where if you were poor, you were really going to be taken advantage of in these areas. It's just interesting that the, the authors, they include those specific ones that Jesus is caring about the poor, even in this moment. So he comes on the scene, and he starts yelling different things. He's actually quoting from both Isaiah and Jeremiah from those prophets. Jeremiah, hundreds of years earlier, would have been standing in the middle of the temple, the same place, it's a different temple, but in that place. And he was yelling at the Israelites that if they didn't change their wicked ways, that they were going to be conquered and they were going to be taken away. And their temple was destroyed and they were taken away. And Jesus now stands in the same place, yelling the same things, literally quoting the prophet. And 40 years from when Jesus does this, Rome comes in and destroys the temple. 40 years later. So this same thing that Jesus is doing, it comes true. He's saying you need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to change what's going on. If you don't, this is going to happen. Same type of thing. Now, another piece to what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has completely disrupted the business of the temple. And he's like pushing people out. He's flipping tables. Coins are rolling all over. There's tons of Jewish laws about what happens when a coin falls on the floor of the temple. It's actually kind of crazy. Like whatever offering like area it's closest to, it has to go there. But if it's directly in between two of them, then you have to decide which one's more important and the coin has to go there. Like... You can imagine, this was a nightmare. This was not like, okay, clean it up, and 20 minutes later, we're back doing our thing. Jesus has disrupted everything that the temple does. The entire purpose of the temple. 
is put on pause. And what's amazing about that is a week from this time, Jesus is going to fulfill the entire purpose of the temple as well. And the temple is no longer even needed. This sacrificial system is no longer needed because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And so all of this symbolism, again, happening in this scene with the temple. We can't just boil it down to Jesus sees something, gets angry, flips tables, and walks out. There is so much that is calculated, that is going on, that is planned here, that is symbolic in this. All right, this is, the, uh, this, this is like the end of, of scene three. All right, this is not just don't ever sell anything in the foyer of your church or Jesus will come in and flip those tables, okay? I've also heard it used to argue that. Like, how dare you let teenagers sell something that's going to go towards missions. Anyways. <laughs> it's not, not just quite that simple. All right, last, last scene quickly. Verses 18 through 20 here. The next morning, Jesus sees a fig tree. Now, depending on the gospel, this happens in a slightly different time frame, but same idea. It has leaves on it. He's hungry. Goes up to the fig tree. There's no figs. So he curses it. And it withers and it dies. This is super weird. It also just seems like a potential angry overreaction. Like, okay, Jesus was just flipping out in the temple. He's still a little mad. Everyone just keep your distance. That poor fig tree. I mean, because actually when you read it in Mark, it even says it wasn't even fig season. <laughs> and you're like, why, why is he cursing this fig tree? Now, the weird thing is Bethpage, that village that they were like coming from and where he's like seeing this, is actually that, that word uh, means house of the unripe figs or house of the early figs. And so there's just all this symbolism going on. What's happening here? Israel throughout the Old Testament is constantly talked about as being a, a fig tree or a tree or a bush. But it's one that doesn't bear fruit or it has bad fruit. This is not Jesus just being like hangry and needing a Snickers and instead this is the response. This is like, okay, here's the imagery here. We have this fig tree. This is Israel. We just got done talking to them. They're not going to change their ways. They aren't, they aren't having the fruit that they're supposed to have. And so I'm going to curse this tree and it's going to wither up and it's going to die. This is again another prophetic thing pointing to the destruction of the temple that's going to happen 40 years later. Saying like, Israel, you're going you're gonna to be crushed. And it makes sense actually with the second part. Because then we have this little phrase that's often just been understood as like this big crazy faith and prayer. Where Jesus says, hey, if you think that's crazy, you could tell this mountain to go throw itself in the sea. And if you have enough faith, it'll do it. And th that verse, we're like, what? Seriously? Like a mountain? Now, he's not just pointing at any mountain, though. What is he saying? Where, where are they standing next to? The Temple Mount. He's pointing at this mountain, saying, listen, this is, this is going to be destroyed. This whole thing's going to be destroyed. This, this, this tree, image of the temple, is going to be destroyed. That temple, it's going to be tossed, it's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to cease. It's this big, symbolic moment that happens. Everything is changing. It's similar to how the prophets before him had done to people of Israel and how Israel often missed the message just like they're missing it now. All right, so here's where I want to go. Just kind of, how do we apply this? 
I think the first idea that we have to look at today is Jesus' anger. All right? One of the, the worst things we can do is not only misunderstand Scripture, but then to potentially turn it around and use that misunderstanding to do something contrary to Scripture. So if we're going to use this idea that, hey, Jesus gets angry and flips tables, so if I get a little upset, it's not a big deal. Uh, that, that's, yeah, that's not what this passage means and really going against different things here. Now, I'm not trying to rule out the idea that something could stir us, could stir our emotions in a way that would cause us to react uh, and that maybe that could even be a good thing. If you saw someone bullying your child or attacking someone you loved, you would probably become angry, right? In that moment. There are probably certain injustices happening in the world that cause you to be angry. That's not a bad thing. Let's not assume, though, that everything we are upset about is from God. Or even if it is, that however I respond to being angry, I have an excuse to do it. All right? Scripture talks about anger in a few different ways. Ephesians 4. They aren't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read these. Ephesians 4, it says this, uh, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So this is, this is a New American Standard translation. Um, just saying, be angry, but don't sin. So apparently th- those are separate. You can be angry. You're allowed to be angry. And it's not necessarily a sin. In the New Living Translation, it says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. So when anger begins to control us and it begins to push everything we're doing and why we're responding a certain way, that seems to be something different. That seems to be something that's going to give the devil a foothold in our life when we let it control us. Now when you dig into the idea of anger, there's varying thoughts on it as an emotion. Uh, There's a pretty prevalent idea that anger is not a primary emotion. Anger is a secondary emotion. There are other emotions that you are feeling that are leading to anger. Understanding the motivation or the deeper cause of what we're feeling is super important. Because without that, it's really hard to process. It's hard to work through. It's hard to understand. It's hard to find healing. Now God made emotions. Emotions are great. They, they tell us what's going on inside of us. Jesus has emotions. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Emotions are part of being human. What isn't healthy is when we allow emotions to be the only playmaker when we're responding or making a decision. Equally, we don't want to detach from all emotions and only have logic in our decisions. I think that's actually like the definition of a sociopath. Of like, you just have zero emotion, zero empathy. You can't feel anything. Like, we we need to have both of these things working in conjunction together. Jesus had orchestrated the timing of this entire last week of his life. He had calculated, processed, and prayed through what this was going to look like. And I think we often read this story and it can seem like he just reacted emotionally to a situation. But that's why that passage in Mark is so important. He walks in, he surveys the scene, he sees what's going on, he leaves, comes back the next day. And what we know of Jesus' personal life is that Evening, morning, he was spending so much time in prayer, spending time with God, and you better believe that that's what's happening here. Before he goes back to the temple, he's spending time making sure 
that he's in the right place. So this, was, this wasn't a heated reaction in the moment. Okay, this wasn't a heated reaction. This allows for more time of processing and most important, praying. James 1 says this, Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger, our anger that is built up in our own reasons for our own ways does not produce righteousness. So when we feel anger welling up inside of us, first off, most of the time, it's probably from our own stupid frustrations. Right? But at other times, God may be stirring you for a reason. Bring it to him. Pray about it. Pray through it. Ask and seek for, you know, why, why is this bothering me? Why am I feeling angry about this, God? Is God using it for a reason? What would you want to do and how would, how would he want you to respond in that moment? Jesus' response is in line with God's heart. Jesus sees the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the foreigner being taken advantage of. And that's where his response goes. It's in line with God's heart. Don't assume that just because you're angry about something in the world, that it's from God. Or that whatever you do next is somehow something he would condone. In this story, Jesus was specifically concerned about how the poor, how those coming from other countries or other places were being treated by God's people. It was about the vulnerable. One of the things that stirs people to anger the quickest right now in our world, I would just say, is politics. And too often, Christians like to assume that if they are mad about the state of something in the world, that it's automatically a righteous anger, that it's from God, and that this is something that I should be really worked up about and things like that. All right, be careful. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Don't let anger overwhelm and drive you, and in doing so, then become sin. We are moving into an election year. We are in an election year, all right? For the love of God, and I'm using that phrase actually in context, for the love of God, don't react. Process. Pray. It's what we're called to do. It's one of the places that Christians have honestly been the ugliest over the last half dozen years. It's the second we start getting passionate about things politically, the response can be so ugly. The last thing this morning for us, I want to pull from this story, has to do with the Israelites, the religious leaders, those who were following God or they thought they were. All right? Time and time again throughout history, they assumed everything was fine because they were God's chosen people. They had the tabernacle. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the temple. They had God's favor. They assumed everything was fine because they were able to tick off the right boxes in what they were doing and what was in their life. Like, God's in my life a little bit. All right, so everything's fine. Everything's good. We still have the temple. I still go make the sacrifices. And the prophets, time and time again, tried telling them that they needed to change their ways. They needed to stop thinking that they were good just because of the traditions that they held up. In America, for many years, going to church and calling yourself a Christian was just a leading tradition that was shared. And I'm not necessarily saying that in a good way. Over time, that has changed. Like, you don't... You don't just see uh, the same number of people growing up and going to church, like growing up in the church. People started expressing more doubts and other belief systems that came into play. People were hurt by organized religion. 
Families and individuals became overly busy and they wanted that extra time on the weekends. So people just less and less. Now, it may be easy to think then, well, if I'm still one that's hanging on to this, if I'm still someone who goes to church, who's in church, who considers myself a Christian, then I must be good. Regardless of how little, how often, how, you know, I must really love God and I'm doing it for the right reasons. And I'm not so sure about that, especially in small towns where people grow up, live their whole life on display for everybody to see. Everybody knows who you are. And it's, it's too easy to continue to do things simply out of tradition or because you always have or because we're known as a family that goes to church. And then we think we are one of the few who haven't given up on God because we still go to church and we're, we're still good. Everything's fine. It doesn't really matter how we live the other six days because we're still better than the majority of our country that's walked away, so I must be fine. But God is, is, is more, he's so much more than just a bumper sticker identity for us. He needs to be. He is a king that is worthy of our complete and total allegiance in every single area. When Jesus is yelling in the temple, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah Later, the next chapter after that, Jeremiah talks about how Israel will have no more harvests of figs. The days of the fruit are gone. Same type of imagery. They'll be withered up, just like how Jesus cursed the tree. Why, why is Jeremiah saying this? Because the Israelites have assumed that they are good with God, even though they have stopped repenting of their sin. They have stopped being changed by God. They, they think that their traditions are good enough. And this is what Jeremiah says. I want to read this chunk out of Jeremiah. I want you just to think about this. Think about us. Think about our, our, our country. Think about the average everyday Christian. Think about yourself. It says, Jeremiah, say to the people, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, don't they get up again? When they discover they're on the wrong road, don't they turn back? Then why do these people stay on their self-destructive path? Why do the people of Jerusalem refuse to turn back? They cling tightly to their lies. It will not turn around. I listen to their conversations and don't hear a word of truth. It's terrifying to think of God listening in on every conversation you have. Is anyone sorry for doing wrong? Does anyone say what a terrible thing I have done? No, all are running down the path of sin as swiftly as a horse galloping into battle. Even the stork that flies across the sky knows the time of her migration. As do the turtle dove, the swallow, and the crane. They all return at the proper time each year, but not my people. They do not know the Lord's laws. This lack of, of repentance, this lack of honesty and vulnerability as the Israelites approached God, is what led to their destruction. Worship team, would you guys come? Why don't we stand across the room as we kind of bring this to a close. We can fall into tradition and routine just as easy, if not even easier than the Israelites. We can fall into tradition and routine just as easy. And when we look at this story back to back with what we looked at last week with Zacchaeus, all right, this becomes so clear to me 
that when we truly encounter Jesus, the only reasonable response is a complete life change and surrender. That's the only reasonable response if we have an encounter with Jesus. Anything short of life change and total surrender begs the question, did you truly encounter Jesus? Did you truly encounter Jesus? Because if you did, the only reasonable response is just to completely hand things over and say, God, God, I'm I'm yours. I'm yours. If our life has been completely changed, if we, if we aren't restructuring major parts of our life in response to Jesus, and there's a good chance that some, if not all, of our relationship with God is based more on tradition than on who he is. What would someone else looking in on your life from the outside think? Would they think like, wow, something is definitely different in their life? Because following Jesus, it's not just always about being good. It's about being radically transformed. It's not about how good we can be and all these different things. Like, as we grow closer to him, we should begin to look more like him. We should begin to respond more in those ways. Yes, our life should change. Yes, we should probably be doing better things. But that's not what Christianity is about. It's about being radically transformed by Jesus. So I have a couple questions that we're going to put up on the screen here. Just some response questions. And actually even, Brett with the computer, we can, I want to, let's leave those up even just, I don't know, for the first half of the song that we go into here. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. But I want us to be able to see these, these last questions that we have. Are the things that I am most passionate and emotional about in life, the things that really stir me and get me going, are they things that God has placed in my heart? Or are they things that the world has placed in my heart? What parts of my walk with God are being driven by tradition and routine more than a response of life change to who Jesus is? And has my life truly then been radically changed by God? If it has, then how have I restructured my life around him? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into response time. Prayer team members, you guys can come. We're going to have prayer team that are going to be kind of around the room. We'll have some up front, some in the back corner. If there's something in your life that you are needing prayer, you want someone to join with you, we would love for you to just, you can go find someone on the prayer team. You can share what it is, or you can just say, hey, I'd love to have prayer. They'd love to pray. And we're going to take just five minutes here. We're going to sing a song, but I want us to just be processing, thinking. Think through these questions. Honestly answer them. Maybe you need to have an honest conversation if you're here with a spouse or with somebody today. Have a conversation about this. What does this look like? Has, Has my life changed? Has our life changed? Have we really restructured things? around Jesus or did we just simply add an event on Sunday morning in our life so I'm going to do this I'm going to actually I'm going to have Tira just kind of pray 
just over the room as we as we go into this moment. And I just encourage you to to have some open, honest, vulnerable dialogue with God in a way that the Israelites apparently consistently failed to do. And so so let's do that here. Father, we thank you for this time. And we thank you that you know us so deeply and so intimately. Father, would you help us to know ourselves in that way too, that we can know and acknowledge these areas where we are not reflecting you, these areas that we uh, are not learning to look more like you. Father, I pray for transparency and transformation to happen right now, for honest hearts to just come before you with the hope of looking more like you, Jesus, because we know that the world needs more people that look like Jesus. And so, Father, we just say, here we are. This is our honest and authentic selves. Would you come and meet us here, but also help us to look more like you.